It's not a question of whether human beings are causing climate change. It's a question of whether we can do something and whether uh, we have the capacity and the, and the capital to do it and whether we are going to get the help. So this is the framing that the Indian elites uh, think in terms of. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we are bringing you three special episodes as part of our project on energy transition strategies. This project attempted to answer the question, can emerging economies grow while reducing their greenhouse gas emissions? To do that, we looked at three different case studies, Vietnam, Ethiopia, and the Indian state of Gujarat. Each offered a different decarbonization pathway in response to their specific economic, social, and energy needs. Over the past 15 months, through research and workshops, we have engaged with experts with regional expertise to help understand the complexities around each of their pathways. Our second episode looks at the Indian state of Gujarat. Our guest is Sarang Shadori. Sarang is a senior research analyst at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, and he is a senior fellow with the Council on Strategic Risks. Sarang writes regularly on energy transitions, climate change, and geopolitics. And for our project, he wrote a paper on Gujarat's transition toward a low-carbon electricity sector. I'll turn it over to Nikos now to get the conversation started. Well, Sarang, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, let me start by asking you to describe for us the importance of Gujarat in the context of climate change and low carbon development. Why is this a case study that matters for India and for the world? Right. Thank you, uh, Nikos. I'm glad to be here on this on this podcast. And thank you to Lachlan and Lisa for also organizing and hosting this event. Yes, Gujarat is an important state uh, in many respects in India. First of all, it's not a small state. It's one of the, not the largest state, but it is a reasonably sized state, 5% of India's population. Its uh, performance though, in terms of its economic uh, output is substantially above what its population numbers would indicate. So it produces 8% uh, of India's GDP. And uh, when you look at industrial uh, output, actually the numbers are even much higher. So we are looking at about 15% or so of industrial output of the whole country that comes from Gujarat. So this is a state that has always uh, made things uh, and is continuing to make new things. It's a national leader in uh, the traditional industries such as textiles and diamond cutting. But since the liberalization era in India in the 90s, it's actually taken leadership in other sectors such as petrochemicals and pharmaceuticals and automotives as well. And these, of course, are all energy intensive sectors. Petrochemicals, in fact, is directly linked to energy production uh, in a way that others are not. So, so that puts Gujarat in a critical spot in terms of when we are discussing energy transitions in India, I believe this would be one of the top uh, states that must be analyzed deeply. Great, thank you. And in terms of climate policy, how would you characterize the role of the states vis-a-vis -vis the national government when it comes to pursuing climate policy and, and then uh, obviously thinking about Gujarat in, in particular, sort of where is it sat um, and how is it sort of compared to other states uh, in its approach to, to tackling um, uh, emissions and, and climate change? 
Right. So that's sort of the second part in the sense of the first question, because Gujarat is not just important in terms of its carbon footprint and its sort of industries of the present and the future, but it's also uh, been a leader in, in the energy transition uh, for a long time. For example, the first wind turbine in India was set up in that state uh, in the 80s. Uh, this was a public-private partnership. So the idea of bringing in the private sector uh, into the public uh, realm and doing something together has been part of Gujarat's story from the early days. And uh, then again, it uh, was also the first state in India to set up a climate change department uh, in 2009, which acts a kind of, as, as a kind of nodal department at this point, trying to shepherd the other government departments into uh, producing climate plans and, and try, trying to act as a sort of a, a watch person on that. But that was an innovation as well. So the approach for Gujarat quite early on on climate change has been ahead of most states. And then as uh, we will discuss more during this uh, conversation, uh, Gujarat has also led uh, the country at scale when it comes to the energy transition. So we are looking at not just prototype projects or setting up institutions, but actually bringing capacity or making capacity happen on the ground at industrial scale. And I'm referring, of course, to wind, which happened in the 2000s, and then solar, which happened actually quite early, uh, very early in the game. Uh, starting 2009, Gujarat embraced scale up of solar when costs were quite high. So all of these points uh, essentially make Gujarat uh, stand out on, on the low carbon uh, space. So one thing you often see in the literature is, is this idea of a federalist system allowing for state level experimentation and sort of, you know, these policy laboratories. Is that something we've seen with Gujarat evidence of them sort of pursuing ambitious climate policies and then these either spreading to other states or being adopted at the national level? Absolutely. I think there are um, multiple areas where this is the case. So just in electricity, if you look at solar scale up, Gujarat's solar scale up started even before the national plan for scale up. So the national mission for uh, solar electricity really kicked off in 2010. And Gujarat's uh, state mission kicks off a year before. And it's not just rhetoric because Gujarat adds a very large amount of capacity given that time period of early days and very high cost uh, solar uh, paradigms. It adds, uh, by 2012, in fact, Gujarat has 70% of the nation's solar electricity. So when you, federalism has really worked in the sense it was in intended to, when it comes to the energy transition in Gujarat, because a government could push forward initiatives and in, in a sense act as a laboratory that the national government learned from, and of course other states. And that's the whole idea of federalism. It works best when states actually focus on comparative advantage and show the way, and then the whole nation can then look at the mistakes and advantages and then adopt them as, uh, or adapt them indeed as, as necessary. So that in fact has happened in the case of Gujarat and solar particularly, but also in the case of electricity reform which is mentioned in, in, the, in the papers uh, published in this series, that the uh, comprehensive uh, reform of the electricity sector, making it fiscally sound, 
providing higher quality of service. Gujarat was not the first state in, in this case to actually start this process, but it was the first state to complete it successfully uh, with parameters that were largely, there were some downsides to it, but largely positive uh, achievements and other states uh, either did that later or never actually completely did it in a way that was promised. Can I ask you on the other side of federalism, of course, is the politics of each state are different. And so I wanted to maybe ask you, you know, what is the political economy of political drivers that made Gujarat be sort of one of the early adopters? What were the political obstacles that were overcome or the political coalition of forces that sort of came together to make this possible? So it's an interesting question because, as you know, India is a multi-party democracy and the it's a, it's a messy, noisy democracy. I mean, we in the United States know that well as well at this point. But in India, that sort of scenario has been seen for a long time. Gujarat, in a sense, uh, since the 90s, I would say since the late 90s, has been a bit of an exception. It's essentially been a one-party dominated state and uh, in many ways a highly centralized type of a government. Uh, one party has ruled uh, the state since the late 90s, so it's been 20 plus years that you've had a single party government. That's quite rare in India, where anti-incumbency is very, very common, and governments are often uh, voted out in big numbers after one or two terms. Uh, rarely does a government go on to three terms. And uh, in Gujarat, we have seen, you know, four or five terms of the same party and uh, a significant chunk of the time that we are talking about, it was one leader as well, Narendra Modi, who's now prime minister. So in a sense, a centralized and if you could say less volatile uh, democratic structure argument could be made that's that's aided uh, the transition. On the other hand, there are other states in India where there has also been a renewables uh, scale-up, substantial uh, one. Gujarat is not the only one at this point. So Gujarat was the leader, but at this point you can, for example, look at the state of Karnataka, which has had a stellar performance on solar and also a strong one on wind and small hydro, by the way. They were the leaders in small hydro in India long, long time back in the 80s. So there's a Gujarat-like parallel in Karnataka, but Karnataka has seen a lot of turnover in governments and indeed a lot of uh, contestation. So whereas it's tempting to say that this is this is why Gujarat succeeded, um, that is not the entire story. Now, nevertheless, there's something to be said for it because something like electricity reform, which has uh, losers in some sense, uh, perhaps more than a raw solar scale-up, story where there are barriers of bureaucratic or overcoming bureaucratic hurdles and integrating the electricity and and finding land indeed these are hurdles but the sort of electricity reform gujarat did with the jyoti gram scheme which is the village light scheme that's the word uh, in gujarati or hindi even it, it took on entrenched interests and that arguably was more possible because you had a more concentrated leadership so the broad conclusion is it may have helped but uh, that's not the entire story uh, for success of Gujarat. It also 
speaks to the kind of priorities the leadership exercised. Um, it speaks to the messaging, and we can we can talk about this a bit more later. But th th there were many elements that could could be pursued by a more uh, let's say a more a changing polity in other states potentially. You've talked a lot about electricity and and both wind and solar as well as electricity sector reform. Uh, to what extent has electricity moved in tandem or far ahead of progress in the decarbonization of other sectors? By far, I should say, electricity is the leader when it comes to decarbonization in India. You're seeing now close to 90 gigawatts of renewables installed, which is a pretty large number by any standard. And a, a lot of solar pickup in the last five years. Compared to that, the other sectors have not had as much of a of a transition dynamic present. And uh, I, I think essentially that is the story around the world. Uh, you're seeing electricity lead uh, in some cases by, by light years ahead of the other sectors. And the big reason is um, economics. Electricity through solar or wind is now actually as we know and is widely now understood, uh, is cost competitive, certainly with coal in most cases, but also increasingly starting to compete with, with natural gas. And so when the economics is favorable and the politics is favorable, then I think you have a very strong sort of motive force. And India always has barriers beyond that uh, but those two have to align for things really to change. And I think for the other sectors, that has not quite happened so far. There are, there are signs it's going to happen, but that has not quite happened as yet. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case that in our research, we found the same thing, that progress in uh, wind and solar uptick in particular uh, was much easier and faster than other sectors like transportation, efficiency, or or industrial decarbonization. I wanted to pick up on this idea of industry because you talked about Gujarat as a place that makes things. Um, and I wanted to maybe ask the question, how has this industrial base been affected or enabled the transition? Because, you know, oftentimes in the development or energy and development literature, there's this idea that, yeah, you can have a low carbon power system, but it, it's very hard to do sort of heavy industry with it. And so one of the reasons we wanted to actually study Gujarat was its industrialization. So maybe can you talk about that and how it has either enabled, hindered, or maybe not been affected at all by the transition? In many ways, the industrial development of Gujarat has continued as the transition is, has happened. Now, we should keep the transition in perspective. Uh, we are not talking of a a massive shift as yet in the electricity uh, picture of the state or or the whole country. So just as a statistic, solar uh, contributes to less than 4% of India's electricity generation in terms of actual electrons generated. This is after all the efforts of the last uh, six years. And Gujarat's case, uh, the number is higher but we are not talking of 40, 50% coming from renewables as yet. So we are talking of a smaller amount, 
which has been uh, integrated relatively successfully. Not, not always. There has been curtailment, especially in uh, some parts of India, in the, in the south uh, in particular. But uh, technically, it hasn't been as great a challenge as it would be once the renewables generation crosses 20 or 25 percent. Uh, that's when I think the question of whether you can have 24-7 uh, reliable electricity at the loads needed for heavy industry becomes an issue. At this point, I think industrial development has proceeded apace uh, and other factors have been much more influential on it than electricity, uh, the mix of fuels, let's say. Having said that, there is, uh, this is a question of the near future because uh, Gujarat and Rajasthan on the, uh, are really the big sunshine states uh, of India. And they, not only that, they also have land, you know, substantial quantity that can be made available. Uh, so land is a constraint in many parts of India. It's a much bigger constraint in India than it is, for, the, for example, in the U.S. Uh, and we are talking of uh, small land holdings of farmers who most of whom are barely above the poverty line. And then getting together large contiguous tracts of land has always been a challenge in agricultural states. And in Gujarat and Rajasthan, the advantage is that there are barren wasteland areas that can be acquired much more easily. And so this is the uh, future is coming relatively quickly in terms of even larger capacity and integration and uh, how that fits into domestic usage or demand patterns uh, will become much more significant in, in, in the near term. Of course, the, the, the caveats being uh, where India's overall economy is going, but that's a you know, slightly different discussion. You um, briefly mentioned Narendra Modi earlier, Surang, and he obviously was chief minister um, you know, in 2012 when Gujarat built its first utility-scale solar park and, and sort of led a lot of those initiatives. He's since become prime minister and, and announced a, a very ambitious uh, national solar mission. How should we think about how Modi thinks about and approaches climate policy and, and the solar industry? Is this something he has a deep-set sort of moral conviction towards or is this a pragmatic sort of political um, imperative for him? What, what's, what do you see as the sort of uh, drive behind Modi's decision-making in, in this arena? It's a very interesting question because uh, that's actually something I have worked on in terms of asking a question, uh, I think a less intuitive question than it may appear as to why did India and Modi embrace uh, renewables in such an ambitious manner in 2014 after being elected as national leader. Uh, there was a substantial increase in the target for solar and wind that he announced, a 5x increase in the case of solar. And it just seems like where we are now, given the sort of cost paradigms for solar, it seems you know, obvious that that would happen perhaps, but it wasn't so obvious in 2014. The cost uh, paradigm for solar was still quite above that for domestic coal. And although the uh, solar uh, prices uh, for modules had been falling, there was no guarantee that they would fall in such a dramatic manner as they indeed did starting around 2015 for 14-15 time frame. So 
So that was a risk. And the Indian state is not known for taking big risks in general. It's a risk averse type of a politics when it comes to policy. So the question is, was climate change the driver of such big decisions? And not just the decision, but also an execution process that was followed up after that to make uh, some of this happen. And the answer that I would give is uh, probably not, uh, in the sense that I think Modi realized, and not just Modi, the, the, the people around him, and there were a couple of important people who also advised him on that. I think they, they realized that a shift to renewables had multiple benefits. Uh, so the, the four factors that really dominated that sort of embrace of high targets, and some of that you can see in, in Modi's initiatives in, in, within the state when he, when he did those early projects, one of them was uh, attracting investment. India is an investment-starved country. Its uh, cost of capital is very high, and that has been traditionally a big barrier for any sort of major change on the ground. And energy is a very infrastructure-intensive uh, sector. So uh, because energy and green energy was a uh, pretty large and a pretty major uh, area that was catching fire in the investment circles in the, in the US and, and Europe and even Asia, uh, Modi did see this as a, as a way to bring in that sort of investment in projects that had a future potentially and would also attract attention because India was by then certainly seen as a country that had to do something on climate change and was also seen as being on the defensive on climate change and international negotiations. So that gets to the second motivation why uh, I think Modi embraced uh, renewables was to make an offensive play in international relationships. Uh, we, we had an Obama administration in the US that had made climate change as a major priority in terms of its foreign relations, had struck a bilateral deal with China on substantial uh, reduction of carbon emissions. And India was clearly on sort of the, uh, in the spotlight, if you will. And so I think what India did at that point was to preempt the sort of pressures that might have developed in Paris and decided to rather than defend the position and, and primarily defend the position and there's still a defense mechanism there in the negotiations but rather than rest most of its uh, arguments on on the fact that it wasn't responsible historically for uh, the problem it decided to go on the offensive and say well we will embrace very ambitious targets and we will see them through and that immediately not only took the pressure off of India in terms of coal at that point, but also, in a sense, um, showed India as a leader in, 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 in that environment, which in Copenhagen, if you remember, in 2009, India came under a lot of pressure as being a laggard on climate change. And in Paris, it was seen broadly as a leader. And I think that that embrace allowed for that. And, and I think building that sort of deeper partnership with the U.S. and also France, uh, which comes into play when India founds the International Solar Alliance later on, uh, was important for India in terms of the geopolitical payoffs, uh, not just in the climate conversation, but also beyond. So, th so those were the two uh, reasons. Now, was climate change a driver? I think it certainly was a co-benefit. Because I think India recognizes that climate change is a problem. Uh, the politics of climate denial is not present in India. So it's not a question of whether human beings are causing climate change. It's a question of whether 
we can do something and whether uh, we have the capacity and the, and the capital to do it and whether we are going to get the help. So this is the framing that the Indian elites uh, think in terms of. And so I think that's where it's been, uh, it's, it's been an asset. But I, I, I don't think it was the main driver of the change. I think in attracting investment, uh, making an international play, and also indeed domestic politics in terms of rebranding the politics of Modi in particular, uh, who has had a controversial past in terms of uh, some of the violence that happened early in his watch in Gujarat, uh, for which there were a lot of uh, questions and the US denied him a visa in 2005. And in many ways, his image was that of that of a divisive leader. Uh, and I think with renewables first in state and then when he came to power, along with other things, uh, rebranded himself as a doer, as a modernizer, and this mantle of seizing the high ground in Indian politics as a modernizer, I think, has been pretty important since the 90s. We have had two or three major leaders in India who have, who have uh, taken that on and have had uh, tasted success uh, because of it, certainly among the middle classes and international uh, opinion. So I think that was also another uh, major motivation for... Uh, uh, India to do this. And finally, of course, there is one motivation that has been constant for all leaders, which is energy security. The fact that India lacks, it does have domestic coal, but uh, how long that will last, uh, the quality desire is, we are not talking of centuries, we are talking of a few decades. So there's a long-term question, even for electricity, certainly a major question on transport, uh, because oil is a huge, uh, in a sense, a burden on India's uh, foreign trade and uh, getting electricity uh, cleaned up and then electrifying transport i think has uh, has has a win-win paradigm for india no matter what uh, politician or political party you're from this is a consensus so uh, these factors more than the sort of moder modernistic uh, impulses on climate change that one may see from see from the environmental uh, activist side of the spectrum, I think that has been much more the driver in the case of uh, uh, the Modi government and indeed any, even the Indian governments before that, that, that began, uh, began the transition process. Can I ask you as a follow-up to this question, Sarang, you know, one of the things that we're seeing a lot happen is you talked about investment and energy security, and there's something at the intersection of those two things, which is domestic manufacturing and supply chains, right? That desire to not just deploy, but actually get a piece of the manufacturing action. You know, how do you assess the efforts of Gujarat on the one hand, but maybe India more broadly in trying to attract and, and become part of these supply chains, develop domestic capacity, self-sufficiency, and so on? Right, so this is another interesting story because India started out after independence as really focusing on manufacturing. In a sense, the electricity sector's priorities in the 50s, when uh, the first Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru built all the big dams, and at that time hydropower was seen as the big way. In fact, there's a famous quote of his that it said, dams are the temples of modern India. and. Uh, there was a lot of focus on hydropower. Later on, it shifted to coal. Uh, nuclear was always sort of the thing that the big thing that was going to happen that never really happened. But 
the bottom line was the focus on electricity was always uh, on the commanding heights of the economy. It was not about getting access to the poor. It's interesting, uh, Nehru has been accused of being a socialist, but in many ways he was a state capitalist, uh, more than a socialist, because certainly in this sector, the idea was that we will have electricity, we will manufacture things because we don't want to rely on foreign trade. When foreign trade came to us through the British, it led to colonial conquest, and we will be self-sufficient in most things. Understood, of course, that everything cannot be made at home, and uh, that is indeed a uh, kind of idea that has uh, continued. Now, in the 90s, that changed through liberalization, where the idea was that India would integrate globally into global trade and manufacturing and simply buy things that it cannot manufacture at comparative advantage. But the two eras of sort of dirigist capitalism and let's say partial liberalization of the 90s and 2000s and indeed the second decade of this century led to mixed results. So you had India capturing a global role in areas like petrochemicals in Gujarat, uh, for example, being the leader in pharmaceuticals, in uh, IT, which is not exactly manufacturing in a sense, it's, it's services, but and then automotive. So these were the sort of sunrise areas that India succeeded partially at least. But there were many other areas India missed out on. Uh, Low-cost consumer goods, for example, uh, for export, or indeed electronics. India missed out on the electronics manufacturing and supply chain story. And that was taken up by China, South Korea, Malaysia, Vietnam, and countries in Asia, which India could easily have because it had the sort of institutions and basic R&D in the 80s. Uh, that it had an automotive. There was, there was no reason why it couldn't have done the same in electronics. And if it had done that, it would have naturally captured a leading spot in solar manufacturing in terms of modules, which uh, at, at this time is, is entirely an import-dependent activity. So I think going forward, given that the mood of the world and certainly in India has shifted again towards a sort of a more managed capitalism, there is a new push in India for making renewables products at home. And solar manufacturing has been explicitly stated as a focus area of, uh, going forward. And indeed, some plans for new plants that make solar modules and cells uh, have been announced in Gujarat. Gujarat again is becoming emerging potentially as a leader in renewables manufacturing. In, in wind, actually, India has had a manufacturing story, which was later on sort of uh, didn't go as far as, as anticipated. But that happened in the neighboring state of Maharashtra, also a highly industrialized state. But on solar, it appears that Gujarat is going to be a significant player going forward. You mentioned um, managed capitalism. And I think one of the, the interesting things right, right now in the context of COVID-19 is the various calls for, for green stimulus and using sort of economic recovery plans to accelerate the energy transition. And in India, I'm not sure how much there has been a sort of domestic call for this, but the fiscal response in general has been, has been very low. And there, there doesn't seem to be much indication at all of any sort of green, green stimulus. So perhaps more, more generally, how do you see COVID-19 impacting uh, the energy transition in India and, and in Gujarat specifically? And what sort of policy responses do you imagine 
sort of taking place in the next uh, little while that, that could sort of affect or, or um, accelerate the, uh, the energy transition? COVID has been a pretty, uh, very bad news for India, as it has indeed been for many countries. I'm not, not just talking about the deaths, uh, the human tragedies that have occurred from the deaths uh, and also indeed the, the plight of migrants who were caught uh, flat-footed when the lockdown was announced and so forth. But it's really also been a big hit on, on demand. Uh, this is a, a demand-side crisis that has been generated. Now, the unfortunate thing in the case of India particularly is that India already had a demand-side challenge before COVID. If you look at electricity uh, demand in, in the previous year before COVID hit, and India does its fiscal years from April to March. So in a sense, it March of this year pretty much rounds up the pre-COVID year. And you, you can see that electricity demand is flat. For a developing country built as one of the fast-growing economies of the world, that's pretty devastating. We, we, are, you know, we are talking of in a healthy economy, we uh, growing at 8%. Uh, one would expect electricity demand pickup of uh, given efficiency gains, maybe 6% or 6.5%. So having a close to zero uh, demand growth was pretty, uh, was pretty telling. And so when COVID hit, we are talking, of course, of a negative uh, demand growth. And we are not just talking of a negative demand growth for the quarter or for the year. We are talking of a few years before demand comes back to pre-COVID years. And then the question is whether the growth is going to come back at the same levels that it was seen uh, till the earlier parts of this decade. And there is really no guarantee because like many Indian governments since the 90s, uh, this government has also been very supply side focused. So there's been a focus on creating capacity. Uh, the statistics that the government touts often are about capacity, how many gigawatts were added uh, and so forth, which is really important because historically India has had a supply side problem. If you look at the uh, 70s and 80s, these were decades where supply siders uh, simply could not find a voice anywhere in, in the policy space. But now we are at a point where you have a supply side story but the demand side story of, of creating demand for all these products, for electricity, the biggest sources of electricity demand, and I haven't checked the latest numbers, but COVID is really kind of camouflaging the, you know, many things at this point. But certainly till a year or two back were uh, domestic consumption and agriculture. So domestic consumption driven by air conditioners and appliances and uh, agriculture driven by a shrinking water table which uh, drives uh, farmers to buy, you know, bigger, bigger tube wells to pump water out from below the ground. So it's not exactly, these are not exactly productive uh, uses of electricity. They seem to be more in terms of overcoming a problem that has emerged. Uh, high heat increasing now because of climate change and then water tables shrinking, which has also happened because of the sort of high intensity agriculture practices. So. My point there is that uh, there isn't a sort of uh, uh, manufacturing story that there could have been uh, in India of the kind that there should be to increase electricity demand in a productive sense. If electricity demand 
growth came from, substantially came from manufacturing growth, then it, it would have all sorts of knock-on positive externalities, which, which uh, increasing demand for air conditioning or for just drilling deeper to get water simply isn't going to have. So absolutely, I would say that the industrialization question feeds into the COVID impact. And I think all of these challenges are sort of uh, blending into a, a broader challenge of demand, uh, creating a kind of productive demand growth in Indian electricity for the future. Well, thank you so much, Sarang. Being um, a conversation about India, we've we've managed to barely scratch the surface here, but but this was a fa- fascinating sort of expansion on on your paper, and I'd encourage um, uh, anyone who's interested to go take a look at uh, at your paper and our accompanying report. Uh, and this was great to have the opportunity to ask you a few more questions. So thanks for taking the time to to speak with us today. Thank you very much, Lachlan and Nikos. It's been a pleasure, and uh, look forward to more of these. Thank you. Thanks to Sarang for joining Nikos and Lachlan today and for participating in our Energy Transition Strategies workshops. You can find out more about the project as well as the Gujarat paper on our website and look for the episodes on Vietnam and Ethiopia. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us at CSIS.org or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening. 